Well, please turn in your Bibles once again to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, as we come back to this passage one more time. We're going to be looking this morning at the subject of Daniel's 70th week. And no, I'm not referring to how many periods of time we've been in Daniel chapter 9. Talking about a specific seven-year period that Daniel chapter 9 makes reference to. And to study that, we're going to look at verses 24 through 27. And then give our attention this morning to that final verse, verse 27, which describes what is known as Daniel's 70th week. So Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Well, if you're just joining us this morning, you have jumped in at quite the location, but I might be able to help you catch up a little bit to where we are. The book of Daniel was written by a man who lived uh, under Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C. Daniel was a Jew. He was taken captive uh, in one of the waves of the Babylonian conquest of the nation of Judah, the remaining kingdom of Israel, uh, out as a result of their rebellion against God. And they were to be in this captivity in Babylon for 70 years, according to the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel observed toward the end of this 70 years these words in the books of Jeremiah. We read this in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He recognized this. He recognized that Jerusalem was still desolate. It was in ruins. It had been destroyed, decimated, laid bare. The walls were broken down. The temple was broken down. Everything was an absolute mess. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to pray to God on behalf of this city and on behalf of the temple and on behalf of my people Israel that God would do what he said he would do. In the Old Testament and previous to this, God had promised that if Israel rebelled and was taken captive and they turned their attention to the Lord and they repented and they sought his face, that he would hear their prayer from heaven and he would heal their land and forgive their sins. And so Daniel does this. He gives his attention to the Lord. And we looked for some weeks at the prayer that Daniel offered as he confessed 
his sins and the sins of his people. And as he told God, we have done wrong. You have done nothing but what is right. You only did what you promised. You've made good on your threats. We knew it was coming and we still haven't repented. And here we are in all of this trouble. And so God, please now hear your servant, hear my prayer, have mercy on us and be gracious to us. Not because of what we have done, not because of any good deeds, as he says, but because of your Mercy, verse 18, we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Well, God in his grace listens to Daniel's prayer. And he sends the angel Gabriel, verses 20 to 23, with a message. And the message concerns how God is answering this prayer of Daniel and the specifics of how he is going to work it out. The answer to the prayer is, yes, I will do what you have asked. He doesn't actually specifically say, yes, I will do this. But he just skips straight to how he's going to do it. And that's what verses 24 and through 27 are about. This prophecy that Gabriel brings about 70 quote unquote years, or excuse me, 70 weeks. Namely, what we've looked at as 70 sets of seven years apiece, 490 years total that have some divisions laid out in the text that are for the purpose of doing a few things to bring about the end of all of really redemptive history. And in particular, all the things that Daniel prayed for concerning Israel and the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And so the purpose of these 70 weeks, as he says here in verse 24, was to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. So he's going to deal with wrongdoings. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness instead, seal up vision and prophecy, everything that has been predicted and spoken, and then anointing the most holy place, this temple. And he says these purposes regard, if you notice early in the verse, your people and your holy city, Israel and Jerusalem. This is what Daniel prayed about. This is what the answer is about. This is what the 70 weeks are about. In verse 25, he talked about what would happen with regard to a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, last week I showed you a little bit of an outline of the, of uh, a timeline rather, of what was going on. We have that again this morning, and you should be able to see that uh, behind me here. The decree, and we won't be going into all the details of this again this morning, but the decree uh, seems best to fit the decree of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, during the time of Nehemiah and Nehemiah chapter 2, to restore and rebuild not just the temple, but the city of Jerusalem, approximately 445 or 444 BC. And from that time until Messiah the Prince, who we of course now know in retrospect as Jesus of Nazareth, there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks, namely 483 years or uh, approximately until the time of A.D. 33 using the 360 day year that would have been customary for the Jewish people at that time. So what you have is a time from the issuing of a decree to rebuild the city to the time when the Messiah arrives, and it would be during that time. 
But we notice that that is not the end. We might expect the Messiah to come and then everything is over and everything, he makes everything right. But the problem is there's still more to come. And for some undetermined period of time, at least unrevealed period of time, uh, verse 26 describes there will be some other things that go on. Specifically after that time when the Messiah arrives, number one, he'll be killed. It says the Messiah will be cut off. And then number two, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And last time we studied this out and saw that this would be, uh, this would align with the coming of the Roman Empire, not just to conquered Jerusalem which had already happened sometime earlier but actually to destroy the city of Jerusalem which took place in the year AD 70. So once again the city is left desolate. Well at some point after this now we're arriving at uh, nearly 2,000 years since the first 62 and seven weeks happened since the coming of the Messiah. At some point future from there will be one more set of seven years. It's still left to take place according to the text as we'll see in even more detail as we go through this. And this is the time period known as Daniel's 70th week. This 70th week, the events of the 70th week, revolve around, in particular, one figure, one human, one individual, who is uh, noted in verse 26 as the prince who is to come. You see that? The prince who is to come. There is Messiah the prince, which is one prince, one ruler, one leader. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a different prince, the prince who is to come. And when we get to verse 27 where it says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He's the last person that has been mentioned. He is the best antecedent or the previous reference of this he who's going to make a firm covenant with the many. This again, the actions of this 70th week revolve around this one individual and how he will relate to the nation of Israel and then of course what ultimately God and his true Messiah will do in response to him. But as we look at this we're going to address this 70th week from the perspective of the activity of this coming prince. This is what we will call him the coming prince, the people of the prince who is to come. And so we'll begin by looking at his identity. Who is he? The identity of the coming prince. Now, I don't want to belabor this more than necessary because we have looked at this uh, to some extent back in chapter 7 when we saw this particular individual uh, spoken of as the little horn. The little horn. And that is one of his several names that he is known by in the scriptures. He is also known as the man of sin, or the son of destruction, uh, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is known as Antichrist, according to the book of 1 John. And then he is even referred to in the book of Revelation as simply the beast. 
the beast, Revelation chapter 13. These are some of his names. So this is one and the same person, one of the same individual. And you see that as the different accounts of him and the different names that are given to him are laid out throughout scripture, they, they overlap and they sort of, as you synthesize these things, it becomes very clear that we're dealing with the same person. Now, who is this person beyond just simply his names? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about where he comes from, his origin. According to chapter 7, this little horn comes up out of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, is how we identified that at that time. So the little horn uh, comes up from that empire. And according to chapter 9, verse 26, his people, his people are the ones who destroyed the temple after Messiah was killed, after Christ was killed. Once again, this refers to the Roman Empire. So he is in some way coming from there. This has led many, and I think it's quite a reasonable suspicion, to say that there must be at that time some form of a revived Roman Empire. Whether that means that it is Western, whether it means it's based in Rome, whether it means that it is roughly covering the same area, it's difficult to say exactly what that is until we see the specifics laid out when it happens. But nonetheless, he is in some way coming from there. Now, in addition to this, he may, and we'll look at this more when we get into the end of chapter 11, he may, in fact, be, uh, according to his ethnicity, he may be Jewish in some way. Chapter 11, verse 37 says that he will have no regard for the gods of his fathers or the God of his fathers, which may be a hint that he actually should be worshiping the one true God, and yet he is not. And if this is the case, then of course he would be someone like the Apostle Paul, who was a citizen both of Rome and of Israel. This may account for the fact that he is welcomed as not only one who has the power to deliver Israel, but also as one who is one of them. Of course, at the same time, we shouldn't forget the fact that he is antichrist and he deceives people into thinking that he himself is, in effect, the Messiah. And so if he were to come from this particular ethnicity, this would make sense as well. Now, people will worship this particular person he will be worshiped by many and you might look at this and say well look we know that this has been predicted like he is going to come why would people worship him well one as we'll see later on he's going to force them to do this he's going to force worship of himself but also just consider how prone we are even today to trust in people to save us from our problems to trust in other people. Think about how things are going in the world right now and think about how satisfied you are with them. You ever get those surveys and they say, how satisfied were you with your visit today? You know, and it's eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 or completely satisfied, wouldn't change anything. Or one, it's terrible. Well, consider they gave you a survey about the state of the world or the state of your country. How would you evaluate that? But not just that, consider what you would say then as to how you would go about doing this. Surely you don't think, well, maybe you do. Well, just put me in charge and I'll fix the whole thing. We often act like this and talk like this, but I don't think many of us would actually want the job. But we might look at someone else and say, you know, if this person could just be in charge, if this person could, you know, get a little bit more power, they would fix our problem. And we see how easy it is to trust in people to change things, to do what we want them to do. And of course, 
almost inevitably they let us down in some way or another. Well, you can see here why people might be tempted to worship one who is even so much of a deceiver, someone who is, uh, who is evil in this way, because we want people to rescue us. We want people to do things for us. And as we see what he does here and as we see how people follow him, it should make sense a little bit more why people would, despite all the warning signs even in the Bible, go along with this. So this is his identity. This is his identity. He is the Antichrist. He is the prince who is to come. And he is going to come and make a covenant. And that is the next thing that we look at here. The covenant of the coming prince. This says here that he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Again, we've established already that we're looking at a period of seven years when we refer to a week. Um, what is he doing with this covenant? Well, we find here, we don't really find much about the nature of this covenant directly in the phrase itself. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. We simply know that there is a covenant. But the fact that just to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here, it says in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That hints at what this covenant may at least involve. Maybe that's not the entire substance of it, but that it at least involves these elements, sacrifice and grain offering, which would have been part of the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, the sacrificial system that was given way back early in the Bible, way at, back at Mount Sinai. And these were crucial parts of this. Um, if he is changing this, and if this implies that he is breaking the covenant that was made earlier, then it would seem that this is at least part of the equation. Which then, kind of uh, from there, we can take the idea that this covenant that he is going to make has to do with his connection with Israel. He is making a covenant with the nation, with the Jewish people, and that he is making a covenant with them concerning some degree of restoration of their actual situation to the way that they want it to be. Remember what Daniel is praying about. Everything is bad in the temple. Everything is desolate. This has all gone bad. And they want to get things back to the way that they're supposed to be if everything is running properly. But this is not the way that it is during Daniel's time. And it's not the way that it's going to be leading up to the time of Antichrist. Um, there are a lot of people, you may be aware, who reject Jesus as the Messiah. But who very much would want someone to bring Israel back to law keeping. You understand that, right? There are many people who would follow these Judaistic practices. They would want this to take place. And you also are aware that on the place where the Jewish temple once stood that the, uh, and where the offerings would take place according to scripture, you're going to find an Islamic mosque. Okay, this is, these kinds of things are not happening. And if someone were to come and were to put everything back the way that it is in their mind supposed to be, he would find some very willing followers, even if maybe they had to compromise a little bit, even if it was somebody who was from another territory, even if maybe this person did seem a little suspicious, and maybe even if they think in the back of their mind because they've read the book of Daniel, hmm, I wonder if this is the Antichrist. He is a deceiver after all, and many people would be so eager to restore these things that they are simply willing to go with whoever would help bring that about. Either way, 
This one is going to make sure that a covenant is in place. Um, the idea here of making a firm covenant, the language can refer, by the way, either to forcing a covenant or enforcing a covenant. Uh, it may be that he is actually just making sure that these people do this, or he's at least just making sure that it's protected. But one way or another, he is guaranteeing that this will come about. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is the covenant of the coming prince. But what do we find happens next? He makes this covenant and in the middle of the week, right in the middle of that seven-year period, he will betray the covenant. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. This is just briefly the treachery of the coming prince. The treachery of the, com the coming prince. The betrayal. The going back on his word. He has deceived them into thinking that he was going to do this. And now he is completely turning the tables on them. He's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Again, just to go a little bit deeper on these, when you go back to the book of Leviticus, you'll read about many different offerings. And if you read Leviticus 1 through uh, right into the beginning of chapter 6, you'll find a number of details about what these different offerings consisted of, the offerings that were under the sacrificial system. The implication of the text here is that these had restarted. Once again, I'll emphasize that these are not going on right now, in particular at the temple. And for all the people that want to make a claim of being an Orthodox Jew or a Jew who follows the scripture, it is actually impossible for them to completely follow everything that the scripture says because there's no sacrificial system and there's no temple that's going on. So this had restarted, but then he is going to put a stop to this. He says it's over it's not happening anymore. Now, if that's not bad enough, what he does from there is even worse. It's not just that he stops it. It's that he takes a number of horrible actions. And we consider next the evil acts of the coming prince. The evil acts of the coming prince. The first thing is that he brings desolation to the temple and to Jerusalem. He brings desolation to the temple and to Jerusalem. When Jesus is referring to this coming time, he uses language like this. Verse 24 of Luke 21, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Just think about that picture it's like they're walking up to the city and just stomping, like it means nothing, right? They're just destroying the city. And of course, this one will be the ultimate one to do that and to lead that charge. He's going to uh, make the city a problem. He's going to cause the temple to be a problem. Um, by the way, if you are keeping score at home, this is how many desolations now that we're dealing with. I count at least four the desolations of the temple, the one where Daniel finds himself in at the moment is only the first of several. The temple lies desolate. That's what prompts Daniel to pray. But also then you have later on uh, what we saw in chapter 8 that it's going, there are going to be some things done to it. It's going to be blasphemed by Antiochus Epiphanes who would come in the second century B.C. But then you have the complete destruction in A.D. 70 of the temple by the Roman conquerors. And then you have... 
even after all this is restarted, you have another desolation still yet to come from our own perspective happening when Antichrist does this. So he is, this is uh, just something that keeps happening over and over again. His may seem to be the worst, though, of all. Because it is referred to here as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Think about that word. What does it mean when something is abominable? You know, I can't help but think about the old uh, uh, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer movie, you know, the abominable snow monster of the north. Nobody wants anything to do with this guy. That's the idea. Abominable. It's just you want nothing to do with it. It's, it's completely something you can't look upon. It is horrible, horrifying. And here what you have here is the abomination of desolation. This one is going to make the temple desolate. This, uh, this Antichrist on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And Gabriel is looking way off into the future. The angel Gabriel, as he talks to Daniel, and he says, this is coming at the end, at the time of the end. This is going to come. In what way does he do this? Uh, I want you to turn over with me, if you would, just flip backwards a little bit to the book of Ezekiel. And I want you to just get a picture of what it would look like for the temple to be um, desolate in this particular kind of way, an abomination. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel chapter 8, excuse me, not Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel 8. We're going to read a little bit of an extended section here, Ezekiel 8. This will give us a picture of the kind of spirit of what's going on with abominations in the the temple. This is Ezekiel, his words. It says, It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there's the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head, And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. He's referring back to this vision in chapter 1 that he initially saw. Then he, saw, then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary? But yet you will see still greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they're committing here. So I entered and looked and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. And then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. 
The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they've committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they're putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. You see the way they took the worship of the true God and they completely replaced it. It's like the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he says they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They made idols out of everything. And then they worshipped the sun. This is the way that their hearts turned. They, they defamed and blasphemed the temple of God, that very place. This is the kind of thing that the coming prince will do. But he takes it even one step further. Because he doesn't just remove the mosaic sacrifice. He doesn't even just set up idols in their place. And he doesn't say, go worship the sun. What does he do? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He doesn't just promote idolatry. He seeks the worship for himself, as if he is God. This is the next thing that he does as far as his evil acts. He doesn't just bring desolation to the temple, but specifically he forces worship of himself. He calls for worship of himself and he forces worship of himself. And he doesn't just force worship of himself. He actually forces worship of even an image that is made of him. You read about this in Revelation chapter 13 and it says in verse 8 all who dwell on the earth will worship him everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the book of life of the lamb who has been slain uh, has been slain he is going to force worship upon himself there is um, some help he gets from another beast verse 15 of revelation 13 it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So he basically says, everybody's going to worship me and everybody's going to worship this image that's been made of me or else you're dead. This is how evil he is. We should be willing to worship the one true God even at the cost of our lives. Instead of this, here's one who forces other people to worship himself. This is uh, the ultimate evil 
He forces worship of himself. And in addition to this, he takes action against the people of God. He persecutes Israel and God's saints. He persecutes Israel and God's saints. We read about this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will wear them down. He will try to destroy them. Verse 21 of Daniel 7, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. This is going to be bad. Um, If you would turn somewhere else with me, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, show you a few things about what is going to be going on at this time. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is answering some questions from his disciples about uh, the temple, its destruction, and then the sign of Jesus coming and the end of the age. And uh, he says, make sure no one deceives you. If they say I'm the Christ, they're not. If they say go, he's out in the wilderness, don't listen to them. Don't do any of those things. But there is something that's going to indicate when I'm about to come. And it is this, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This, this is aligned with the time when he, of course, breaks the sacrifice, breaks the sacrificial system, and then he himself goes into the temple and says, I'm the one to worship. He goes back on his covenant at this time and does this. Clearly a reference to this same individual from Daniel chapter 9. Clearly this is something that's taking place. As Jesus says, this is right before his own coming, as we'll see as we go through these next few verses. And he says he is going to be in the holy place. Jesus doesn't say what he's there for, but we know what he's there for. He's making, the temp- he's making the holy place desolate and specifically doing so by virtue of making himself the object of worship. And he says to these disciples of his, when you see this taking place, you need to get out of town. Literally flee to the mountains. Because it's going to be bad. Whoever's in the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. You know the things that you hear about when there's perhaps an accident in a a vessel of some kind, an airplane or something like that. Don't grab all your stuff and carry your bags and where's my suitcase and where's my... You get out of there. You get off the plane and you get away from it because it could at any time burst into flames. There could be some danger from that. So you just go. You just get out. That's what he's saying. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? It's not the situation you want to be in when you're running away, right? So that's all he's saying by that. Pray that your flight won't be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's going to be the worst time that there has been or will be. The second half of Daniel's 70th week. And he says, uh, unless those days had been cut short, 
no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What does he mean by this? Does it mean that somehow God is going to change the timescale of what God was expecting or God was planning? No, what he's saying there is that this would have gone on a lot longer according to mere human power, except for the fact that God has limited the time that this one will be allowed to rule for the sake of, as it says here, the elect, for the sake of his people. So if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, there he is, don't believe him. False Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's, again, he's going back to the bigger question of when is Jesus going to come and how will you know he's coming. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power, excuse me, with power and great glory." He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Do you see the phrase there? The son of man coming with the clouds of the sky. Where do we get that from? Daniel chapter 7. The coming of the son of man aligns with the kingdom of God coming and taking over from the kingdoms of the earth. And here you have this ultimate human ruler, this antichrist, this abomination of desolation, who is ruling for a period of time. But how does it end? With the coming of the son of man. He persecutes Israel and God's saints for a particular period of time that backs right up to the coming of Jesus Christ, which is what ends it. So you have an order, the abomination of desolation, which we find at the midpoint of this 70th week. Great tribulation described here for the second half of this week, followed immediately by the coming of the Son of Man. And so then this evil reign of this one, which would on its own last a very long time because of his great power, is cut short. And what happens next is that it lasts until something, as Daniel tells us. Daniel 9, 27. Until, until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Here is one who makes his living off destruction, makes his living off opposing everything good, ruining everything good. But the same fate is coming for him. And this is not because of some type of cosmic karma. You know, it come, whatever you do comes back around to you. This is not the way it works. This is because God has decreed this destruction to take place. It's because God has judged him. It's because God has sentenced him. Daniel 7 says that the courts sat for judgment. The courts sat for judgment and then this one was judged and destroyed. Daniel 7, 11, I kept looking until the beast was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints and the, of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The destruction of the coming prince is laid out here. It says a complete destruction is poured out 
on the one who makes desolate. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that this will happen when Jesus comes. He will slay him by the breath of his mouth. Revelation 19 says that the Son of Man comes and he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This picture that he's going to come and just completely destroy this evil one who opposes him. And this Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire. And of course Daniel chapter 7 mentions this as well. And this destruction is at this point complete. And this brings us to where Daniel is aiming the entire time. Daniel didn't know about all the bumps in the road along the way. Daniel's just asking, look, we are in trouble. The temple is desolate. The city is desolate. Can you do something about this, Lord? Can you please make good on your promises? Can you rescue us and have mercy on us? And this is the means by which God does that. Because the final desolator is destroyed. The final one who would make a mess out of Jerusalem, who would attack Israel, the one who would, who would blaspheme and defame God and his temple is now gone. A complete destruction has been poured out on him. And you know what? There's no one else left who's going to do that because now someone else is not just in charge, in principle, behind the scenes, but in active ruling upon the earth. And this is what we will call the replacement of the coming prince. He is out and someone else and something else is in. Who is he replaced with? The Lord Jesus Christ. What is this kingdom replaced with? The kingdom of God. When Jesus comes to the earth, this is the end, not just of this little blip of a seven-year period. This is the end of the entire 70 weeks prophecy. This is the end of vision and prophecy, as Daniel has said in 924, as Gabriel has said to him in 924. This is the end of an entire era, and it's the start of something entirely new. The kingdom of God that was said in chapter 2 to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The kingdom in chapter 7 that would be ruled by the Son of Man and the saints would take possession of. This is what's coming to replace all human kingdoms. God's kingdom ruled by his man, his God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there will be a complete destruction poured out upon him. And this takes place by none other than the Lord Jesus He's coming, and uh, he is going to make all things right. And by this means, God shows himself faithful to the promises that he made to this nation and to this people. God shows himself merciful to Daniel and to those who are his saints. God shows that he is in control over all things. God shows that he is going to do things in his own time. He will do them even if it feels like almost forever for us before they take place. So what is supposed to be our takeaway from this? I want to give you a few things in response to thinking about this coming prince and all the things that are going to happen to him. What, what should be our response? Um, first of all, consider this. Consider the depth of human rebellion against God. The depth of human rebellion against God. Doesn't this seem ludicrous that someone, even having these predictions in the Bible, would still go to do this? That someone knows that 
all of this is going to take place, that this is here, and that many people will follow him. And yet, we still rebel against God. Many times people will know very clearly what God says to do in the Bible, and yet have no concern at all to do it. Our rebellion against God is not from a lack of clarity about what God expects of us. Our rebellion against God is just that, rebellion. And so Psalm 2 says that the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Oh no, what does God say? He laughs in heaven. He mocks, he scoffs at them. What are you going to do to me? Are you seriously opposing me? How can you even think that this is the slightest bit of a good idea? And yet people do it. This has always been the case from Adam all the way right up until God makes all things new. The death of human rebellion against God. And this isn't just for the rulers. This is anyone who does not worship the one true God. Our rebellion against God takes place every time we sin. And it takes place when we refuse to bow the knee to him and to his son Jesus Christ as Lord. So we shouldn't look at this and say, how could someone do this? We should look at this and say, oh no, how have I done this? And even though I may not be able to exercise all of this, or my conscience might not let me do this in some ways, or I might be hindered by the lack of power that I have, or the lack of shrewdness and skill or opportunity, nonetheless, I want to live life my way, and I don't want God's commandments in my way. And if that's the attitude that we have, we need to repent and turn to Christ for salvation, because our heart is wrong before the Lord. Understand the depth of human rebellion against God. Secondly, understand the futility of human rebellion against God. Understand the futility of it. Here is the most powerful man in history until God's appointed God-man, God's appointed ruler comes and just wipes him out like he's nothing. The futility of human rebellion against God. I mentioned earlier the Lord laughs, Psalm 2, in heaven. There's no way that anyone will be able to take him on. So don't think that you can stand against God. Don't think that you can live your life however you want to and kind of things are going to work out okay in the end. No, rebellion against God is going to meet its match and then some. So understand the futility of human rebellion against God. Thirdly, concerning someone like this, don't believe that you can bring the kingdom of God by your power. By your power. Or that you can bring about Uh, just by extension, things to be the way that you want in the world by your own power. If it takes the return of Jesus Christ to wipe out this human ruler, why do we think that we lesser people will be able to do it our way? Don't put your trust in princes. Don't trust in rulers. Don't trust in your own shrewdness. Don't trust in your own self. The end result of all activity, even by Christians, before Jesus comes, will be Not necessarily because of their doing, but despite it, there will be someone who rules the entire world, forces worship of himself, and overcomes the saints until Jesus steps in and intervenes directly. Why would we think that we would be able to do anything to stop that if this is exactly what God has said will happen? Another thing that we should remember, there's two more. Don't believe that you can ignore the cosmic battle in the world 
the cosmic battle. Now that sounds kind of, uh, you know, ethereal and out there, what's going on. And there's some things behind the scenes going on that we've kind of got hints of, and we'll see a little bit more when we get to chapter 10. Uh, But I don't so much refer to the angelic kinds of things going on as the fact that God has a plan and Satan and his representatives oppose it. And you can't just walk through the world and act like this is some kind of a secular place where, well, I just live here in this world and I eat food and, you know, I do physical activity and I've got my philosophy maybe, but like, that's all I really have. And as long as I make it to the end and everything was good and happy, then like, that's the best that I can do. We can't go all the way through our lives and act like there's no spiritual reality, act like there's no judgment, act like God is not going to do things. These things will happen. They do matter. Everything that God has said will take place. He's going to bring a kingdom. He's going to judge people. He's going to change things the way that he wants them. And we don't get to just kind of sidestep that and live in our own what is really an alternate reality. And yet this is the way that many people live. They live as if these things are not real because functionally for a time in this life, they kind of can. And yet this is not the way things are. We need to be reminded by these things that there is very much a spiritual battle going on in the world. And that God will win this battle hands down. So we can't just act like it's not happening. Instead, we need to do what uh, Psalm 2 says to do. We need to bow our knee. We need to humble ourselves before the Son, God's ruler. And we need to recognize our sinfulness and trust him and then live for him. Finally, we should prepare appropriately for this coming time. Prepare appropriately for this coming time. Now, uh, this is perhaps opening up another can of worms about one minute left into uh, my message here. But uh, I would make the case and have at times made uh, previously made the case that Christians who have believed the gospel before this time will not actually be on the earth for this. Uh, This would be the view of the rapture known as the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, those of you who are familiar with that know what I mean by that. Those who are not, that will be for another time. So I would actually make the case that the best way of understanding the time when that will happen is before these final events take place. And I could kind of make a comprehensive case for you. However, um, even though I think that is the best understanding, uh, I still think that we should be prepared for this either way. Number one, I might be wrong on that. And I'm prepared to admit that. I hope I'm not, but I'm prepared to admit it if I am. Um, But also, because when the scripture talks about the idea of this coming, it speaks of a disposition of readiness. Not only for those in Israel who, again, will be sort of the return to focus for this time. When Jesus says in Matthew 24, be ready and if you see this, then do this. That's one element of being there. But even when the Apostle Paul speaks to believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about these things right before this all happens. He says, we need to be alert and sober. He says, we're of the day. We, We are not those who are destined. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says that in that text, which is part of the reason I would think that we will not endure these things. At the same time, he says we need to be, because we see it's coming, alert and sober. So I would encourage you that even if you share my view that this is not the the place where we will be involved if we are Christians before this time comes, we still need to not simply say, well, it's coming. I don't have to really think about that. We should be alert and sober knowing what God is going to do in the future. And we should be prepared 
We should know what the scripture says about these things. And we should live with a kind of urgency and alertness for the, the things that are coming one day in the future. Not only this ultimate rebellion, but then the coming and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd urge you to be prepared for this coming time. Let's go to the Lord together and ask for his grace to respond in these ways. God, thank you for this uh, insight into the future. May you help us to seek to honor you and how we think about your kingdom and uh, what precedes it. May you help us to see the world in light of this. May you help us to live godly in preparation for the time when you will make all things right. And may you be glorified by your work in our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen.